All right. Well, uh, a marketing executive for a new soft drink company was dispatched to Israel uh, to open a new market there. And uh, so when he came back, his boss, the CEO, asked him how it went. He, he said, well, it didn't go well, boss. He said, I couldn't get anyone to buy our, our soft drink. The campaign was a complete flop. And so his boss said, well, what happened? Uh, what was your campaign? And the fellow said, well, since I didn't know Hebrew, I, I decided to convey the ad through pictures using a, a comic strip with three panels. And he said, the first panel showed a guy in a desert dying of thirst, knocking on death's door. The second panel showed him drinking our product. And then the third panel showed him completely rejuvenated, good as new. The CEO said, man, that sounds great. Why didn't it work? And the fellow says, well, nobody told me that in Israel they read from right to left. So, uh, <clears throat> so I want to talk this morning about Israel. And Israel's on everybody's mind. You know, we, we just finished... Uh, providentially, the book of Nehemiah, which, of course, is all about Israel's return to the land and rebuilding the walls and so forth. And we are going to get, as is my uh, practice, into a new book of the Bible after the first of the year. But I've got about six weeks left that I'm going to be here between now and the end of this year. And I thought, we're just going to focus on Israel. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to start out today by talking about Israel and God's plan of the ages and uh, talk about how God's grace is illustrated through the history of his dealings with Israel. Israel's on everybody's mind right now, lots going on. Hopefully by the end of today's message, you'll understand a little bit more about that from biblical history. But a look at Israel's past and future reveals a remarkable picture of God's amazing grace. As conservative, Bible-believing Christians, dispensationalists, no less, I'm going to talk about what that means next week, uh, but those of us who believe in a, a literal, historical, grammatical approach to Scripture, understanding the Bible the way it was intended to be written in its plain, normal sense, we certainly understand and recognize the significance of Israel in God's plan of the ages. We know that according to God's Word, there is a future for national Israel. We know that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will rule the world someday from a literal rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, where he will sit on a literal throne and reign in perfect peace and justice over a literal global kingdom. We know that. But I wonder how many of us have ever stopped to consider how God's eternal attribute of grace is pictured through his relationship with Israel. The prophet Zechariah tells us that God considers Israel to be the apple of his eye. Why? You know, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans in 56-57 AD during the church, uh, early first century church age, in which they kind of asked that question, wait a minute, why did God choose Israel? Is, does that make God unfair? And Paul basically said, nope, God's God, you're not, he can choose whoever he wants. That's grace. That's the definition of uh, sovereignty. And in fact, I mentioned in the early service, you know, sovereignty is something that does not make me nervous. It makes a lot of people nervous and they struggle. What's election? What's this? What's that? Look, doesn't make me nervous at all because I'm glad to know there's a God who knows what he's doing, who can be counted on, who's making all the decisions, and I don't have to worry who is. He's the one doing it. He never changes. He's perfect. And so God chose Israel as the apple of his eye. Zechariah the prophet goes on to describe the return of Christ to inaugurate this long-awaited promised kingdom as a time when 
I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace. The coming kingdom, as we shall see, constitutes the culmination, the climax of God's grace. Now, the greatest expression of God's grace, as we shall see, of course, is Calvary. That's grace in high definition. That's what it was all pointing to. That's the, the high point of human history. But the culmination, the end of time, when time shall be no more, it all comes together and centers around this little piece of real estate in the Middle East called Israel and God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ, who comes and sets up the earthly kingdom from Israel. So this morning, I want us to dive into the scriptures and see how God's relationship with Israel reveals a remarkable picture of his amazing grace that we can then relate not only personally, but to the world as a whole. So let's start with grace defined. Before we can trace God's history of grace in Israel, let's begin by defining grace. You know, grace is one of those words that everyone knows, right? Uh, Grace, it's, it's what you say before a meal, right? <laughs> or, or grace, it, it's a woman's name. Or it's a, a, a beautiful ballet routine, grace. Or it's just general kindness, you know, graciousness, right? Really? I saw a book one time, uh, I think it was written in the 1950s. It was entitled, Grace is Not a Blue-Eyed Blonde. No. That's a great title. We've always got to define biblical terms with biblical definitions. So before we can look at God's grace throughout history centered on Israel, let's define grace. The Greek word is charis. It means unmerited favor or unmerited blessing. It's used 155 times in the New Testament. Almost most of them translated grace. Sometimes charis is translated favor or benefit. But charis, unmerited favor. In the Old Testament, it's the word chen. It means grace or favor. It's used 70 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, 20 times it's translated grace, but most of the time it's translated favor. But the idea here is unmerited favor. So that's grace, undeserved blessing, undeserved or unmerited favor. And it's probably easiest to understand grace uh, when you define it in relation to two other key words in Scripture. It's two counterparts, justice and mercy. See, justice is getting what you deserve. Justice, you get what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's not getting the punishment that you deserve. Grace, then, is getting blessing that you don't deserve. That's grace. When it comes to individual salvation, we see all three of these, grace, justice, and mercy. Now, I've talked about this before, but it's really important to kind of lay this foundation as we uh, get started talking about Israel. So let's consider John 3.16, because all three of these, grace, justice, and mercy, coalesce at the cross as described here in Jesus' words in John 3.16. So you know the passage. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. He goes on to describe what it means to be born again, to be born from above, to be reborn spiritually. How do you do that? By believing in him. And Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most of us can probably quote that verse. But in giving his only Son to die in your place and my place on the cross, to die for the sins of the whole world on the cross, God was satisfying the demands 
of his just nature. Justice was served. See, God had plainly stated that the penalty for sin was death. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, he told Adam and Eve. Paul later explains this theologically when he says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, and all have sinned. And the wages of that sin is death. So the, 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 the rules of the game had been clearly uh, defined. And, you know, God uh, did not create a, a group of uh, 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 human beings as automatic robots who had no choice, that just did what he said. He gave us free will. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We have volition. But he loved us so much he wanted to caution us about eating from that one tree because he didn't want us to be separated from him. I'll come back to what death means in just a moment. But So he gave us that warning. That was the choice. That was the free will. There had to be some choice. Well, of course, we chose to sin. We rebelled against a holy God. And in that moment, God would have been perfectly just to cast us all into hell. That's justice, right? Death, somebody has to pay the price or God is not God. I mean, when people uh, question how God can send someone to hell, they're missing the point completely. God doesn't send anybody to hell. In fact, God has told us in his word he's trying to keep everybody out of hell. He says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And so even though in his justice, we all are under the penalty of, of, of sin, which is eternal death in a literal place of torment called hell, God took the extraordinary step in his mercy and grace of providing a way out. We got ourselves into the predicament. He provided a way out. But just as we had to choose to sin, he didn't force anybody to sin. It was free will. We, too, have to choose to receive the gift. He doesn't force salvation upon anyone. But God's justice was, was served when he sent his son. Because of sin, someone had to die. And that someone was Jesus. Justice was served. The penalty was paid. God's wrath was satisfied. It's what the Bible calls propitiation. First uh, John 2, 2 says, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for God's wrath and, and not for, ours, for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, right? See, God could not wink and nod at sin. It's like when people say, well, God's sending people to hell. It's like they expected God, the minute we sinned, uh, to say to Adam and Eve, well, never mind, don't worry. I was just kidding about that death thing. No no problem. Everybody has problems. I'm just, I'm, forget it. That hell thing, I was just kidding. Well, if he said that, then he becomes fickle, unfaithful, untrustworthy. We can never believe anything God says. But he didn't. He, he, he's God, and he kept his word. And his word is death. That's the punishment. As I said, he took the extraordinary step of providing a way out. But God never winks and nods at sin. In fact, that's Satan's ultimate lie. Satan's ultimate lie that he started in the garden with is you can sin and not die. You shall not, you're not going to die, he says. God said just the opposite. So Satan wants to convince the world that sin has no consequence. You can sin all you want, get away with it, and there's no consequence. But God's word says there's a consequence, hell. And then he satisfied that uh, requirement. He paid that penalty when he sent his eternal son, our Savior, to the earth, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, walked up that Via Dolorosa, scourged, beaten, stabbed, crowned with thorns, took your place on the cross, should have been you on that cross, by the way, died, rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and now he can offer the gift of forgiveness. But because justice has been served, Grace and mercy are now possible. 
but only to those who receive Christ's payment by faith. Notice what Jesus says, whoever believes in me. This is the one and only means of receiving eternal life. Faith is the means by which we take possession of that mercy and that grace, that gift of eternal life. When we receive salvation by faith, two things happen, and both of them are mentioned right here in John 3.16. The first thing that happens when you place your faith in Jesus is you no longer have to perish. That is, you receive mercy, the withholding of, of, of judgment, of punishment. Mercy. We no longer have to go to hell. Elsewhere, Jesus said in John 5, Whoever believes in me shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So, by faith, we receive mercy, the withholding of punishment. But we also receive grace. Because Jesus goes on to say, not only are you not going to spend eternity in torment in hell, but I'm going to give you a special gift, the gift of grace, undeserved favor, undeserved blessing, a free, undeserved gift, eternal life. So, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, not only do we not go to hell, mercy, but we also receive eternal life, grace. And eternal life, by the way, is a present possession, not a future possibility. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. If you wait until you die, it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. You've got to receive it now. So eternal life is something you either have or do not have right now, and you get it by believing in Jesus. Whoever believes in me has everlasting life. It's the gift of grace. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Undeserved merit. We didn't deserve it. We deserve justice, which is hell. But by grace we've been saved. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The gift there is eternal salvation, forgiveness, the gift of grace. That's the gift. Not faith. Calvinists try to convince you that faith is the gift. Like you have to have a gift to get a gift. It's really confusing. They can, it's a category confusion. They, they, they misconfuse the gift with how you get the gift. Um, you know, if I were to hand you a present for your birthday and, and you were about to take it and I would say, no, wait, you can't have it. Where's your gift? You'd go like, well, you've got it. I'm trying to take it. No, no, no. I've got your gift, but you need to have a gift to get the gift. So where's your gift? It just wouldn't make sense. The gift when it comes to eternal life is, the way to receive the gift when it comes to eternal life is by faith. That's the means. Think of it as the hands by which we grasp eternal life. Grammatically, syntactically in Greek, it is impossible for faith to be the gift here. It does not work. Uh, I've talked about that elsewhere. So anybody who suggests to you that faith is a gift is just wrong. There's one condition for receiving eternal life. Just as God didn't force Adam and Eve to sin, he doesn't force you to receive the remedy for that sin. Uh, uh, faith. So it's a gift. It's a gift of grace. In Romans 3.24, Paul says we're justified freely by his grace. <laughs> freely. In Romans 5, going back to that, a little bit after he says that we're all sinners, he says the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. It's a free gift that's kind of redundant, and scholars have pointed out that Paul is being a bit redundant here because grace by definition means free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. He doesn't have to qualify it with the word free, which he does, uh, but it's, 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 an emphasize, it's a way to emphasize it. Sometimes we're redundant on purpose. Uh, it's a free gift, absolutely free, paid for by the blood of Christ, but you have to receive it. So back to John 3.16, how do we see justice, grace, and mercy all coalescing at the cross? Well, again, he 
gave his only begotten son. That's justice. The price was paid. Justice is served. That whoever believes in him should not perish. That's mercy. The withholding of punishment if you've believed in him. But have everlasting life. That's grace. Undeserved gift. So Calvary is the consummate expression of God's grace. It's, it's grace in high death. As John tells us in his gospel, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Grace for grace. John is essentially saying that grace follows grace as ocean wave follows wave washing over us. In the New International Version, English translation of the Bible, this is the New King James on the screen, but the NIV says, uh, one blessing after another is how they paraphrase this verse. The NASB expresses it grace upon grace. But the idea is the fullest, clearest expression of God's grace in Jesus Christ is his son who paid your penalty and mine at the cross. That's what John meant when he said that grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Earlier, John wrote that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Christ, we have, as Paul says, the exceeding riches of God's grace. So when it comes to the history of Israel, we see grace all over the place. And that's what I want to show you uh, this morning. So now that we've defined grace, let's look at grace developed. Uh, let's see how God's grace uh, is developed in his plan of the ages. And, and we've got to go back actually before Israel was founded in Genesis 12. By the way, you think about the Bible as a whole, 6,000 years of human history as God progressively reveals to us in the written word. Israel comes on the scene pretty early, and they're on the scene at the very end in the, in the temple with the whole Antichrist and the abomination of desolation and the, you know, the harlot and, and, and the Antichrist, setting, Satan setting his sights on Jews and they're heading for the hills. So you've got, Gen you've got Israel from cover to cover. And for those who think Israel isn't important or isn't a key part of God's plan, I hope they'll uh, watch this message and connect the dots uh, biblically. But let's go back before Genesis 12 to Genesis 3. It all started in the garden. This is God confronting the serpent after the fall of man. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The Hebrew word that I've highlighted there, translated seed, in Hebrew it's puzzled scholars who study the Semitic languages of the ancient Near East for the longest time. Why? Well, because of what it means. The Hebrew word is zerach, and it means male seed. It's used 229 times in the Hebrew text, and it always means male seed. So it's very strange indeed for Moses, who wrote Genesis, to refer to her seed in the feminine. But we've got to remember that Moses is just the human author. God used 40 different human authors driven along by the Holy Spirit, His eternal Holy Spirit, to write the Bible over 1,500 years in three different languages, from Genesis to Revelation. So God is the ultimate author here. And when the Holy Spirit guided Moses along to write her seed, it was for a reason. You'll notice the New King James capitalizes it here in English, the translation, capital S, because it's a reference to the ultimate seed of the woman who's going to save the world from their sin, uh, Jesus Christ. And it's also a veiled reference to the virgin birth. Since the woman doesn't have the seed, the seed comes from the man, how can the woman have a seed? Well, she was conceived by, Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the virgin 
birth. Had Jesus been conceived by any other means, first of all, he wouldn't be God, but second of all, he'd be sold under sin. That sin is passed down through the blood. We're all part of the same fallen human race, but Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's fully God and fully man. So this is there's a lot packed in to this verse, but notice, he, this seed of the woman, shall bruise your head. This is what we call the proto-evangelium. Or protos meaning first in Greek, euangelium meaning gospel, the earliest first reference to the good news of how God's going to get us out of this predicament that just happened earlier in chapter 3 when we fell. And that first reference to the gospel is that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of Satan. He's going to win the battle. That word bruise used twice in this verse is the Hebrew word that means to, to grip hard or to squeeze. And the idea here is that Jesus Christ is going to crush the most sensitive part of the body, the head. He's going to kill him. He's going to destroy Satan, and he will end up in the lake of fire, just like the Antichrist and false prophet. Now, he goes on to tell us that, yeah, the serpent is going to bruise his heel, just a poetic, figurative way of saying that one of the least dangerous parts of the body. I mean, you can grip your heel pretty hard and, and, and tolerate the pain. It's not going to kill you. You might walk with a limb, but it's not going to it's not going to hurt. And that's what Satan tried to do. He thought he'd killed Christ, but Christ brushed it aside, defeated death, hell, and the grave, rolled away the stone, and rose from the dead. How Satan must have shrieked at horror. But when Christ defeats Satan at the end of the age, it will be a full-fledged crushing of him. So we see God's promise here to rescue mankind from the penalty of sin. And just a few verses later, we see God's grace manifested in the coverings for Adam and Eve. Remember this, Adam and Eve, when God confronted them, they were ashamed, they were naked. And uh, he, the Bible says, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Have you ever stopped to think about that moment <laughs> early on in the garden, after the fall? Uh, where did these tunics come from? I mean, Adam and Eve had never seen physical death before. They walked and talked with the animals. They fellowshiped with them. They weren't carnivores at this point. That didn't happen until later. They never knew. They never saw blood. They never saw death like this, this physical death. And how it must have shocked them. Uh, how their eyes must have been opened to the significance of their sin, that these animals were killed so that they could be covered, prefiguring the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, the seed of the woman that will take away the sins of the world when he shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You know, sometimes people will ask me, how did Adam and Eve know what the consequence was since they'd never seen death? And God says, don't eat of that tree because when you do, you'll die. Well, that goes to the meaning of death. See, we think of death in English and culturally now, after 6,000 years, as physical death. You know, the heart stops beating, the brain waves stop, whatever it is, you're dead, Right. Uh, that's not what the word death means in Scripture. That's one meaning, but there are five kinds of deaths in Scripture. I don't have time to go through all of these, but they're spiritual, physical, eternal, and carnal, and positional death. We're thinking of number two there, physical death, the separation of the soul and spirit from the body. Death just means separation. That's what death means. And so when God told, when God told Adam and Eve that they would die, he mean, he, they understood him in terms of separation. If we do this, we'll be separated from you. This walking and talking with you in the garden, this fellowship, this intimacy with our Creator will be broken, separated. So you've got spiritual separation. That means separating us from God spiritually, the penalty of sin, which also comes with physical separation. 
separating the, the immaterial part of man from the material part. The material part goes to the grave. The immaterial part goes either to heaven or hell. You've got eternal separation. That's when it's, you're past the point of no return. It's appointed unto men once to die. After this, the judgment. If you die in unbelief, Jesus says, if you die in your sins, you'll spend eternity in hell. Carnal separation, that happens for believers. Did you know you can be separated from fellowship? You know, that, that's true. That happens for believers that, who won't change their eternal destiny. You're a child of God. Your position is in Christ. But you can break fellowship uh, you know, with, with the Lord. And then positional is the only positive sense of death in Scripture. Once you do get saved, you are separated once and for all from the uh, unregenerate self. You are now a new man. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new nature. But death just means separation. And so Adam and Eve were separated, and God made tunics and he began to show them the significance of their sin. But as God's plan of the ages moves forward in time, so we talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. Let's talk about Noah. We see grace manifested in Noah's day. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? I mean, God could have destroyed the whole earth, but he rescued those eight, right? And then we pick up the story of God's amazing grace in, the life, grace in the life of Israel when we get to chapter 12 with God's unconditional promise to Abraham. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Get out of your country, from your family and your father's house to a land that I will show you. The Abrahamic covenant or promise. And it is an unconditional promise. It's a guarantee. And it involves three components. It involved a promise of land which we're going to talk about. It involved a promise of seed that from Abraham would become a great nation. Remember, this is Genesis 12. This is 2,000 years before Christ. And here we are to this day with Israel still being center stage. And then it involves a promise of universal global blessing. Never forget that the promise to Abraham said, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth. So it's a global unconditional promise of ultimate peace, righteousness, and judgment. So let's camp out in this Abrahamic covenant for just a moment. Uh, there are two kinds of covenants in Scripture, unconditional and conditional. A conditional covenant is much like a contract. In the ancient Near East, there were two parties. It was an if-then statement. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. And the, the fulfillment of a, a conditional covenant depends on the recipient keeping their side of the bargain. But an unconditional covenant, just the opposite. No if attached. It's an I will statement. Its fulfillment depends solely upon the one making the covenant. So this is an unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham, meaning God's the one that will make sure that it happens. Uh, in Scripture, there are five biblical covenants, all of them clearly spelled out. We don't have time to, to go back and uh, you could preach a whole series on each of these covenants. But four of them are unconditional. The Abrahamic, the land, the Davidic, and the new are unconditional covenants. Then you've got the Mosaic covenant, which is a conditional covenant. Those are the five covenants in Scripture. Uh, and four of them are unconditional, one's conditional. And if you put them, kind of overlay them in God's plan for human history, here's what they look like. This is God's gracious covenant all emanating from his unconditional promise to Abraham. So it started in Genesis 12 with the Abrahamic covenant. Again, we talk about it. Land, seed, blessing, universal, global blessing. Through a nation, the Jews which would come two generations later from Jacob, Abraham's grandson, whose name was changed to Israel, and land, which includes specific boundaries. As time goes on, God reaffirms these three aspects of that covenant 
with three additional covenants that we just talked about, the land, the Davidic, and the new. The land covenant is reiterated in Genesis 15, even giving the boundaries of the land for Israel. And so I've shown this before, but if you look at this map, what you see in red is modern-day Israel. The outline in blue is the boundaries of the land based on the geography I just showed you from Genesis 15. To this day, Israel has never fully occupied the land that was promised to them 2,000 years before Christ. They've had the rights to it in Joshua's day, but they've never fully occupied it. Does that mean God's a liar? That God changed his mind? That he was just kidding? Absolutely not. It's an unconditional covenant. He will fulfill the promise. And that's why what we see happening today is so significant. Uh, you know, you look at this map, everything you see in green on the screen is a Muslim nation. That little tiny sliver you can barely see on the map, that's Israel. You know, the, the Muslim nations are just not going to be satisfied till they get that last little sliver. And it's it's not just about another piece of real estate. I mean, look at the map. Obviously, they've gotten all, all they could ever want. Why do they need that last little bit? It's not about real estate. It's about the holy land. It's about God's land. This is God's land, and they want it. They hate God, they hate Jews, and they hate Christians. And they want that land. And no matter how hard Hamas and Hezbollah and Israel's other enemies try, that land will never be taken away. It's never going to happen. Because God made an unconditional covenant with Israel that they will have that land. And the boundaries are clearly spelled out. Then as you go forward in time to about a thousand years before Christ, you come to the seed aspect of this covenant reiterated with King David. It's called the Davidic covenant. And God told David, your house, your kingdom, your throne shall be forever. Well, I mean... I, I, I know Israel's in the news a lot lately, but as far as I know, there's no temple over there. There's certainly no throne, and there's certainly not a seat of David sitting on that throne in Israel today. In fact, there's no temple. Uh, there's going to be one someday, or else God's a liar. This is what 2 Samuel 7, 16 promises unconditionally. And then, of course, the ultimate end of it all is a you know, universal spiritual blessing. When everyone on the earth, from the least to the greatest, will know there's a God, and they will all worship and serve Him and come up uh, to uh, Jerusalem. And he will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant. So this covenant program is God's gracious covenant to bring mankind full circle back from the fall in the garden to a right relationship when time shall be no more and sin shall be vanquished. Now, as you move forward in time, we come to the present church age. The Bible calls this a mystery What's a mystery? It's something previously undisclosed, something new happening. We're going to talk about this uh, next week. Um, but a mystery is something that God has planned all along, but he just didn't reveal it. He's just now revealing. He's unveiling it. It's the Greek word mysterion. It's like, now I'm going to show you what happens next. The Old Testament clearly talked about a gap of time between when the Messiah come, rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in the first century and when he was cut off. Then there's, it's kind of a pause button that's pressed. And then Daniel the prophet tells us that sometime later, God's going to pick up his covenant program again when the covenant is signed in Daniel 9, 27. And then the final 490 years plan will come to fruition. 483 of it have already passed, seven years yet to come. We'll, we'll probably talk about that in the coming weeks. It's a key a prophecy. But the point is the church was a mystery now put in place. In fact, the, the law is no more. 
Paul tells us the law was put in place until Christ came. Um, and he tells us that now we're in a new dispensation. That's a biblical term. Uh, comes right out of Ephesians 3. Again, we're going to talk about that. But what's happening today? Well, Jew and Gentile are in one body. Doesn't mean God's forsaken Israel. Absolutely not. God certainly still is going to keep his promise. But right now, God has set Israel aside. It's a time of blindness to Israel. Romans 11.25 tells that. Right now, blindness and has happened to Israel. Permanently. Never again. They're, God's done with them. He's forsaken them. He's abrogated his promises. No, no, no. It doesn't say that at all. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Then all Israel will be delivered into the kingdom. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 11. So we're living in this present church age now, but in no way does that eliminate God's unconditional promise. It's going to come to fulfillment, as Paul says in Romans 11, when the deliverer comes out of Zion, that's Jesus, and they, he delivers the nation. That's what saved means, delivered them into the kingdom. And this is his covenant with them. It's unconditional. It's guaranteed. So really, this covenant program constitutes the title deed to the land. You wonder why there's so much conflict over there for that tiny little sliver of real estate? It's because it's God's land. God promised it to Israel. Again and again, the Old Testament prophets are told this is my land, my land, my land, capitalized. This is God's land. And he has a future for it. He didn't have Jesus you know, walk up that Via Dolorosa and shed his blood on the cross to only to forsake his holy land. He's got a future uh, for his land. We, we, we've seen how that land is central to the promise to Abraham and even down to the boundaries. But have you ever stopped to consider how that land comes up again and again in the promise to David and the promise in Jeremiah of the new covenant. Here's 2 Samuel 7, which we just looked at a moment ago. The very next verse says, I want you to dwell in a place of your own and have to move no more. God still remembers his promise of the land. Jeremiah in the new covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, your children will come back to their own border. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, I'm going to bring them back into their own land. In fact, Ezekiel is, is pretty interesting. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about Ezekiel 38 and 39. I've talked about it a lot on various shows and interviews that I've done. The Battle of Gog and Magog is what's happening now, setting the stage for that. I believe it is. But very few people take the time to look at the immediate context before and after Ezekiel 38. So, so note the context. It starts with the New Covenant in Ezekiel 36. Two passages in the Old Testament describe the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. And both of them are eschatological in context. We know that because the plain normal text shows that it can't possibly be referring to today. For one thing, in Jeremiah 31, he says when the new covenant's in place, nobody will need to teach their neighbor. Everybody will know about the Lord. Well, how do you reconcile that with the Great Commission that says go into all the world and teach, right? So we know it's not happening now. Ezekiel 36 tells us when the new covenant's in place, believers won't sin. They will, they will fully obey and walk in perfect righteousness. That's certainly not happening today. I mean, some of you guys are pretty righteous, but I'm sure if I looked hard enough, I could find an occasional sin now and then, certainly if I look in the mirror. So we're not completely righteous. So this is eschatological. So it starts with the promise of the new covenant. Then you have God's promise to bring Israel back to life again in chapter 37. And then you have the battle of Gog and Magog when this northern alliance comes against Israel and, and tries to invade. And then what do you have? The Millennial Temple, nine chapters in great majestic detail describing 
the coming temple from which Christ will reign. And the land is emphasized there. See, it's all about the land. God's gracious covenant is the title deed to the land, the crowning moment of grace. We saw the greatest expression of grace at Calvary, but this is the culmination, the ultimate goal. So this is, you know, when the kingdom promises find ultimate fulfillment. So we see the development of God's grace very early on in human history, through Adam, through Noah, through Abraham. Um, we see it outlined in his unconditional promises. We see Jesus once again reiterating when he talks about his return, how important the land is and how he's going to gather together his elect, that means Israel, his chosen nation of Israel, uh, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. He's going to deposit them back on the land. Every Old Testament prophet talks about this great end times regathering when the Messiah takes the throne. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Isaiah 27, 13, and many others. So we see not only grace defined and grace developed, but as the journey continues, then we see grace displayed again and again and again. After Abraham comes Moses. You have found grace in my sight, God says. Even during Israel's ups and downs and rebellion in the wilderness, God demonstrated his grace through Moses and through the nation itself. As the prophet Jeremiah tells us, uh, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. And then even when Israel was disobedient in Canaan, God graciously raised up judges to help them as they battled the surrounding pagan nations. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. Nevertheless, I love that word. Nevertheless, it's, it's frequently used in Scripture, Old and New Testament alike in our English translations, to indicate a display of God's amazing grace. And there were no shortage of neverthelesses in Israel's journey. And if you think about it, there are no shortage of neverthelesses in your life as well. Even during Israel's years of captivity in Assyria and Babylon, God's grace was on display. Ezra writes, and now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. And through the prophet Zechariah's oracles, during the post-exile time of Israel, we see visions of God's amazing grace being poured out on Israel one day. The whole process of the temple restoration seemed like an impossible job to the few Jews who returned from exile. Nevertheless, God will help Israel by reducing the mountain to a flat plain, making it easier for the workers. We understand the geography in Israel is actually going to change in the future kingdom. The Temple Mount is going to be much larger than it is today. After the Battle of Armageddon and the supernatural things that take place, then it's going to be much bigger than it is today. And when the final stone on the final project of the final rebuilding of Israel's temple takes place, there will be shouts of grace, 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 grace to it. It will echo across the Holy Land. What a day that'll be. And don't forget the verse right before this one that reminds us that the ultimate inauguration of Israel's promised kingdom will be not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. You know, if success is to be gained in the achievements of God's people Israel, it's not going to be obtained by what man can do. Not by man, not by Benjamin Netanyahu, not by the secular leaders in Israel today but by the Spirit of God. And what spirit is that? Well, it's the Spirit of grace, as we talked about at the outset of the message. Centuries after Zechariah, as Israel was in bondage to Rome, that fourth empire that Daniel prophesied would overtake Israel, 
in the first century, Paul reminds us that even so, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. (laughs) Paul includes himself in that remnant. Not every Jew cried, crucify him, crucify him. There were some that believed. Paul believed after the resurrection when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. There are some Jews today that are saved. Absolutely. We call them Messianic Jews. They believe the gospel. But the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected Christ. And Jesus says, you will not see me again until, there's that word again, Matthew 23, you cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you who comes in the Lord. Someday, at the second advent of Christ, they will get it. They will believe the gospel. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans 9 through 11. As we already talked about he, in chapter 11, the deliverer is going to come back and then Israel will be delivered into her kingdom in fulfillment of the covenant promise. That's what Romans 11, 25 and 26 says. But, you know, Paul also talks about how, you know, God has not cast away his people forever. And the problem was they, they haven't believed. In chapter 10, he says, before they can call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom, quoting Joel 2, 13, a second coming passage, before that can happen, they must first individually believe the gospel. He says, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? Personal faith comes before national deliverance. And that's the whole point of the tribulation period. During that time, the gospel is going to go forth by 144,000 Jewish missionaries who are set aside by God to spread the gospel. And the nation of Israel will have one final chance to believe the gospel. And many will. It will be just the opposite of what it was at the first advent. Believe me, there will be some Jews who still stiffen their necks, take the mark of the beast, and refuse the gospel. But the vast majority of Jewish people, at great personal cost at that time, will believe the good news, trust in Christ as their Messiah, and they will be regathered into the land when he comes back the second time. In modern times, even though many people throughout church history have thought Israel's days were over, they they thought the church had replaced Israel. For 1,800 years, there was no Israel on the map. There was no future, they said, for national Israel. Even still, God's grace was on display. On May 14, 1948, the state of Israel is born, or more accurately, reborn, because they were born in Genesis 12. And God brings them back. Uh, Here's the, the Palestine post with a blue Israeli flag superlaid over it. But this is May 14, 1948. Israel is born. By the way, two years later in 1950, the Palestine Post changed its name to what? You know? The Jerusalem Post. Exactly. That's still in print uh, today. Talk about grace. Talk about grace. And, And people who don't understand the Old Testament have trouble understanding the New Testament. If you start with the New Testament and ignore the national promises to Israel in the Old Testament... You're going to end up where, unfortunately, a lot of people are, replacement theology. One of the messages I'm going to do in this series between now and the end of the year, I'm thinking about calling it, Why Replacement Theology Should Be Replaced. <laughs> it's just so unbiblical. It's so wrong. It's just, it doesn't make sense of the plain, normal teaching of God's unconditional promise uh, to Israel. Um, so we see grace displayed throughout Israel's history. And finally, we see grace delivered. Based on the promise of God who cannot lie, and his unconditional promise of blessing, we can count on the fact that grace will be delivered and it it will bring with it all that God has promised. And not just for Israel, but as we saw, for the whole world. The promise of Abraham is a universal promise. Peter reminds us, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens 
and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Look, that's New Testament. Are you still looking for that promise? Or have you given up on it? Um, we are heirs of that promise. We're not Israel. But remember, God's plan through Israel was to save the whole world. When they left Egypt and crossed the Jordan and went into the promised land, they, their goal, God's plan for them was to be a light to the pagan world, to be a light on a hill, that all the surrounding nations would see God's hand of blessing, Yahweh's hand of blessing on Israel, and they would come flocking to say, we want what you have. Your God is way better than all of our ancient Egyptian and Roman gods and the like. It's way better than, than Baal or Moloch or Ashtoreth, all these gods. We want what you have. And that didn't happen. Sadly, Israel capitulated to the false gods around them. They did not obey God. They did not follow God. And so consequently, God's plan moved forward. But one day, that will happen. And when Christ takes the throne, every nation's going to come up to Israel one day and see God's ultimate. What did Paul or the writer of Hebrews say in Hebrews 1? Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's glory for all the world to see. So we're heirs to that promise. Uh, we see that through the seeds of Abraham. Uh, you know, the Bible has four seeds of Abraham. First of all, there's the natural seed. This is ethnic Jews, people who are biologically Jewish people, the ethnic Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham. Paul talks about this. He calls them the countrymen according to my flesh who are Israelites. But then you've got saved Jews, the natural spiritual seed. People who are not only ethnic Jews, but they believe the gospel. They've trusted in Christ for their personal salvation. We call them Messianic Jews. The Bible talks about this too. Paul says they are not all Israel who are of Israel because he says in the Galatians, only those who are of faith are, are sons of Abraham. See, an unbelieving Jew is not going to be in the kingdom any, any more than the Jews who conspired with the Romans to crucify him in the first century are going to be in the kingdom. As I said, to be delivered into the kingdom, you've got to first believe the gospel. And so that's what Paul means here. So you've got the natural seed, the natural spiritual seed. Then guess what? You've got the spiritual seed of Abraham. That's Gentile believers who then get to experience the blessings of the Abrahamic promise that are global in scope. Paul said it to the Galatians, if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed. So if you're here today and you're a believer... And you're a Gentile. I, I don't know. We may have some Jews here. I don't know. But if you're a believing Gentile, then you're part of the spiritual seed of Abraham. But guess what? The ultimate seed is Jesus Christ himself. In that same passage, Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds, going back to Genesis, as to many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. The only way to make sure you are a seed of Abraham and co-heirs with Christ Join heirs of the promises to Abraham is to trust in Christ and him alone for salvation. Otherwise, you're strangers from the covenants of promise. What was Paul talking about when he said here in Ephesians 2.12, the covenants of promise, the Abrahamic promise, which one day the whole world will experience. By faith in Christ, we have been brought near. We've been brought near. And, and those who are heirs to the promise of grace need to rest their hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the return of Christ when he comes back. Uh, grace, that's where we should rest. That's what we need to be focused on. The writer of Hebrews says, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. 
So therefore, let us have grace. Let us have grace. So one day, grace will be delivered. You can count on it. Just as God's grace remained even when Israel was rebellious, so too believers can rest in God's grace with the confidence assurance that he will deliver us safely into the kingdom. On an individual level, that's an amazing promise. It's called eternal security. So many believers are crippled with doubt and a lack of assurance because they don't understand grace. They don't understand that when God gives you eternal life, he's not a liar and he's not going to change his mind. Eternal means eternal. And nothing you can do can separate you from the love of Christ. And we, are, we can count on it. We are kept by the power of God, 1 Peter 1.15, through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'll close with this. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that the final two verses in the Bible make reference to both the return of Christ and guess what? Grace. You know, in, in seminary or Bible college or formal study of theology, you've got the classic ten categories of theology. You know, God, Christ, or Bible, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, salvation, sanctification, ecclesiology, all these different topics. And, uh, you know, what does the Bible say about each of these topics? And, you know, you study soteriology, the study of salvation, and you study eschatology, the study of the end times. Most people, you know, sleep through that one because most pastors today don't even, talk, don't even touch end times prophecy, sadly. But their, their Bible teaches both. And if I were to say that the average uh, seminary student, I'm going to be teaching next week uh, a five-week intensive course on soteriology down in Texas at a missions school. The whole week, eight hours a day on the doctrine of salvation. And if I were to, to, to say to a seminary student or a Bible college student, what area of theology comes immediately to mind when I say the word grace? What would you say, Rich? Probably salvation, right? I mean, that's where our mind goes, right? We don't think of eschatology, but the Bible closes by connecting the two. Uh, verse 20 says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Eschatology. That's where the Bible, you know, it has a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It has an end. I'm coming back to make all things new. But notice the next verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's all about grace. And God's grace is manifested so clearly through Israel. So there you have it. Grace defined, grace developed, grace displayed, and one day grace delivered. And what we see as we observe Israel and God's plan of the ages is grace all over the place. So here's the takeaway. Look for God's grace in your life and rest in it. Rest in that grace. And while you're doing that, look up because he's coming back. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together as we close. Father, thank you so much for just this incredible, though quick, survey of uh, your plan of the ages and how Israel is so central within it. And Lord, today as we think, see things heating up over in the Holy Land, your land, Lord, I pray that it would not fill us with fear or trepidation or uncertainty, but confidence, knowing that as things fall apart, they're really falling into place. And Lord, you are working out your plan precisely as you said you would. And so, Lord, we've talked about grace extensively today. We've expressed the, the gospel and how one can be saved. And I pray if there's anyone listening or watching this message today that doesn't know 
your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that today in simple childlike faith they would receive the gift by trusting in Him and Him alone for salvation. For those who already know you, Lord, help us to rest in that grace and the confidence that you are still in full control. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.